So let's just get it out of the bag. Yes, uh, I'm not pretty to look at. Um, so first of all, I got mauled by a surgeon on my left eye, which makes it red, and you don't want to look at that very closely. And then I got mauled by my uh, bathroom sink this morning as I got up to, uh, to go to the restroom, and, um, and that's my right eye. So please forgive me, and if you close your eyes, I won't think you're sleeping, okay? <laughs> because I honestly would not want to look at it. Um, but anyway, uh, so, you know, I confess that, that I've never quite understood, or at least not until recently, this sort of obsession with Downton Abbey. Um, my wife kind of gets obsessed with it. Um, I know many of you do, maybe some of you don't. And if you don't, maybe you're obsessed with uh, Friday Night Lights. Kind of a different genre, but what on earth could they have in common, you're thinking? You know, and I have, you know, at the bidding of my wife, watched Downton Abbey. At the bidding of my kids, I've watched a little Friday Night Lights. And, um, and of course, both of them, I went in there with an arrogant kind of a snarl. Like, this is just a soap opera. What am I doing? And why would I watch such petty stuff? And whether it's, uh, you, know, you know, aristocratic or whether it's deep south high school football, come on, we're over that stuff, right? So I've watched it, and I find myself getting drawn in somehow to both of them, surprisingly. And, um, and I laid up one night thinking, what's going on here? You know, and, and then it dawned upon me. You know, the protagonists of both are not the people, not, not at least any one individual. You know, there's, they're all complicated people. They're all got... Right as you think that's going to be the noble person, then they show another side. They're messy. What's going on? What is it that we yearn for that makes us watch these things? And then it dawned upon me. You know, the number one factor of unhappiness, according to all kinds of studies, is loneliness. We are born, made, our DNA is to relationally know and to be known. And into Dylan, Dylan, if you know the Friday Night Lights, is the hero. Or the Downton Abbey is the hero. Because what you see is this incredibly complex, the writers say it well, so they're very well, both are very well written. But you see this amazing community that just keeps coming back as the great hero, the point of it all. It's the community. Now just imagine for a moment if you could take that community that both either or either of those communities and you could take them out of their secular context if you could engraft them, those very communities, into Christ, by the Holy Spirit. Really engraft. I mean, not, not metaphor here. I mean, really engraft. So that these communities become the body of Christ. These corporate communities, organically united with all of their complexities, become the body of Christ. I remember thinking, where's my diligence? You know, I'm, 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 I'm missing those high school years if I'm, 
if I'm doing, watching uh, the side of Where, Where's my Abby? And it dawned upon me. For me, for the last 30 years, it's you. You're it. And I literally look at your faces, having been involved in so many messes and so many things and personalities and all the complexity of your lives and the questions and the and the mo some moments you just you know you will look like you are the hero of the church and the next moment I'm and of course the same with me and it dawned upon me it's just this incredible somehow it's it's the sum of the whole that becomes this incredible thing so we are engaging this topic on spiritual gifts uh, as you know in our Sunday schools and I'm here to give a plenary sermon if you will on spiritual gifts but I want to keep that in mind because if you've heard what I've said so far you already know the purpose you maybe you haven't thought of yourself like this but you are really and this is not a sales pitch you are really essential to the gospel Essential, I said. Think about that as we come to this text. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your scripture. How it, even being read and now preached, comes alive, reincarnated, if you will, into the very presence of our demographic and situation. We pray, Lord, come alive in our hearts as you engage us and fill us with your spirit by your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. And so what I want to do is look at this 1 Corinthians passage. It's, it's obviously been read in the, in the shadow of, of Chronicles and, and this coming together of the people to, to build a temple and how each of them were important. Each of their gifts were important. Each of their crafts were important. That is a picture of what Paul now will describe about you as part of the body of Christ. It's in this temple-esque language, as you'll see. And so I want to give you, it's a kind of survey, so we're going to have to go on each point pretty quickly, but, but nine points. Yep, this is not a three-point sermon by far. It's a nine-point sermon. Imagine that. But we will do it quickly. Nine just observations. First of all, notice that if you were to put this into the context, especially I want to reference you to, there's three major lists, Pauline lists of spiritual gifts. I'm going to be referencing the other two as well. And the first I want to reference is notice especially in 1 Corinthians 10, as it sets up 1 Corinthians 12, how the church is described as the body of Christ. He says it this way, the cup of blessing, it's in a sacramental context. He's talking about it this way, if I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that, I, that we bless, is it not a participation? That word's koinonia. It would be a horrible misuse of this term to make that anything less than a real, active, partaking of the blood of Christ. And it goes on. The bread that we break, is it not a partaking in the body of Christ? 
Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for all partake of the one bread. I mean, you're sitting here thinking about the Lord's table. You're looking at the the cup, and you're looking at the bread, and and you're thinking, he's talking about that. And and you're you're left thinking, maybe it's just a cool metaphor, you know, that, that, hey, yeah, isn't that cool? You know, we got these metaphors up here, these signs, things that want us to remember something. But then Paul, in an audacious manner, goes further. He says, no. Somehow this meal, and what it's signifying is directing itself, it, it directing us to itself in the manner in which it is a means by which we are partaking of Christ and we do this corporately together as one body, many members, he explains. That table is incomplete apart from you. It's people who have walked off the street before and said, Pastor, could you baptize my child? And I've said, well, are, are you a member of this church? But I don't ask that question. I know it. But we have a family church, and I know everybody, I think. And so I say, I explained to him. I said, well, you don't understand. You, you, you don't, the, this isn't a magic show. You know, you, you're not the power of this to save is united to it as it is united to this body of Christ and the means of grace to come through the community of faith one another that's what paul is saying here and so you see the same language uh, reflected in ephesians this body of christ but particularly in a manner which without it we would not partake of christ i want you to really think about that and what is the immeasurable greatness of the power towards us who believe he says in chapter one of ephesians according to the working of his great might that he worked in christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, above all and, and every name that is named, and not only in this age, but also in the age to come. That's all speak for the ascension of Christ. He's not here. And then, verse 22, and he put all of this under his feet, which is under his authority, and gave him as head over all things given in, or to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Did you hear that? This is not metaphor. Which is his body? How do we know it's not metaphor? Because Christ is not complete. The fullness of him then requires this body lest we only have a head and no members. See, that's the first point. There is a mystical, albeit real, participation in the person, work, and body, even, flesh of Christ. How so, you ask? Because this flesh-on-flesh Christ is mystically you by the miracle of the Holy Spirit. So that when you touch one another, you touch Jesus. When they touch you, Jesus touches you too. And it's real. And it's powerful. It's Downton Abbey and steroids with a redemptive.
That brings us to the second point. Notice in this passage how we discover the Christian perspective about an essentially communal conception of salvation. Let me say that again. We discover a Christian perspective that says that there's an essentially communal conception of salvation. There's no I. It's all we. The you here is second persons as you read it. And notice then how this is developed in this passage. In this passage, for instance, Paul's development of this body theology constitutes 16 verses out of the 31 total verses in 1 Corinthians 12. Over half the verses are focusing and explaining this body theology. Notice verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, there many are one body, so it is with Christ. Whoa, where did that come out? I thought he was talking about us. Oh, so it is with Christ. You see what he did? Pulled one right over you, didn't he? It's, it's this mystery again. And then he goes on to describe the different demographics. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. We are all made to drink of the same spirit, which mystically communes us to one another to become the true body of Christ. Now, of course, there's a kind of caveat to that. Not necessarily, not necessarily immediately, not perfectly, not infallibly, but really, it's there. In, with, and through you corporately. Ephesians describes it as a holy temple in the Lord. You, this body. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You, plural, become that very temple that, that you read about in Chronicles. And it's you then, each member, when you bring your life into this communion, you get engrafted into the body of Christ. That's the second point. You see, the conception now of salvation is changing. It's not an individual matter, not essentially, between one person and God. This is utterly foreign to Paul. Utterly foreign. As much as that's familiar to us in our post-enlightenment meism generation. To be in Christ, in the Lord, in the Spirit, means for Paul to be in the community of Christ. To be in Christ, in the Lord, in the Spirit, means to be in the community of Christ, the Lord, and the Spirit, says Richard Hayes. Dietrich Bonhoeffer reflects about this in his book, Life Together, he says, Christian brotherhood is not an ideal which we must realize. In other words, it's not this abstract idea. It is rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. The more clearly we learn to recognize that the ground and strength and promise of our fellowship is in Christ alone, part one, 
and the mere serenity that shall we think of our fellowship and pray and hope for it, we can meet others only through the mediation of Christ. In other words, what is he saying? You don't have the fullness of salvation until you have Christ one another in you through the body of Christ. It gets messy. It gets time-consuming. It gets, on it goes, sacrificial. It's amazing how I have noticed this again in this little, what I thought was going to be this gnarly little high school you know, soap opera, but Dylan always comes through the town using people that are so messed up sometimes, but they're there for each other. They're always there. It's a town, a small town. Same with the Abbey. That's the second point. The third point. We have to discover that the so-called body of Christ is flesh on flesh, materiality. That is to say, listen carefully, there's something essentially local versus global about the body of Christ. It's not that the global isn't real too. We have a universal and global church of which we confess to belong to, yes, and it's true. It Sometimes global will become local because you will connect with someone, it can be in an airport, wherever it is, and the moment, it happened to me just the other day, well, actually as I was half high on my left eye surgical procedure, is there, you know, that little loopy thing they do right before you go in? And this nurse, you know, was, was working with me and she, and she said something to her colleague over there about being a Christian, you know, a, she was talking about her faith, and they were talking about their, her Christianity, and I said, oh, so you're a Christian. She goes, yes, I am. How about you? And I said, yes, I am. We are now brothers and sisters. I mean, it just trans, that whole room changed right there. Everything changed. Jesus was touching my eye now. It just, it was different. And I knew I could rely on it. Well, not necessarily, but usually, Right? And so we've got to understand that local is the priority when we think about the body of Christ. It's not the body until it's flesh. It's real flesh. It's easy to say, yes, I'm a Christian and I belong to the church of Jesus Christ because I profess the faith of Christ. No, you don't. No, you don't. You don't belong to the body of Christ until you're participating with other people in real time, in real place, and all the messiness of each other's lives. That's when you belong to the body of Christ. It's called membership. However you want to frame it, however you want to word it, it's people coming together and covenanting together to be there for each other as they share their confession of faith in Christ. That's essential to this. Notice again this idea that that G.K. Chesterton talks about in his book, The Heretics, and he says, the man who lives in a small community lives in a much larger world. Boy, do we need to start hearing that in this age of event-centered Christianity. Get as many people in a stadium as you can, and we think that's the church. No, it's not. Not really. 
as theologians throughout the centuries have said, the, it's the locality. It's the, it's the flesh on flesh. It's to the degree. There, I'm not saying it's not a church totally. That's not my point. But what is a better and better and better church? It's more and more and more local. The more local, the better. He goes on, the reason is obvious. In a large community, we choose our companions. In a small community, our companions are chosen for us. Isn't that true? You know, you're sitting in this congregation and you come to a little meeting and you're thinking, oh, these aren't the folks that I like to hang around with naturally. Well, of course it's not. Because you're, you're coming to Christ. He's just not in your image. Sorry. He's in the image of us. It's beautiful. Asian. African. Anglo. Male. Female. Class A, B, C, D, E, F. However you want to frame it. All are essential to this being a whole To be known and to know me. That's amazing. That's the point. 1 Corinthians 12 says it this way But it is the same Spirit who empowers them all in everyone. He says it twice. It's the same one Spirit of Christ that empowers all of these. And this is after he talked about there are a variety of ministries, a variety of services. But they're all empowered. Everyone. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. The emphasis, each one of us. You are essential. Number five. That was number four. Number five. Each and every Christian is an essential element of the gospel and gospel witness on earth. I'm kind of restating it again. But here, did you notice, and I won't read it all, verses 15 all the way through 20, or almost uh, 21 here, or, or 24 actually. This is where he goes through this whole thing about, you know, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. The, the hand can't say to the nose, I have no need of you. That whole long body sort of description that is a metaphor. He's talking about our body now and the outward body and, you, you know, this part that needs this part. And, and that is a metaphor to the not metaphor of the body of Christ. And that's his point. Your gift. You are a gift and it is essential. Number six. Notice that a spiritual gift is not this or that special aptitude or ability given to an individual, but it's rather who you are in service. It's a ministry. It's a calling. It's an activity. That which is given in service to the mission of the body of Christ, acting together as to spiritually empower the whole person. That is to say, you, your education, your experiences, your natural aptitudes, your personality, your ethnicity, your gender, on and on I could go. All of that is engrafted into this body of Christ. 
by virtue of your participation and service. I want to do a little, go, go dig down a little bit, so this will be a little tedious, but not long. This word, charismata, if you know it, that's the term that in the, some English translations uh, interpreted, you know, spiritual gift. That's an unfortunate translation. Not because it's wrong, but because of the way the semantic range of, of gift for us, that English word gift, has now become like a gift is something that I'm given in a sense like I'm given a book. So God has given you and we're looking for this now, you know, this book or this other thing. That's not really what this word is. That is to say some people will claim that for Paul, charisma, always in its plural, or charismata, is a technical term that means spirit-given ability. In your, one of your lessons, you're gonna, you're, in the lesson you're going to do next week, I give an illustration of a person who was up in the mountains of North Georgia. That, of course, was me. And, um, and the occasion where my mentor, I was a young Christian, and my mentor was with me, uh, my spiritual mentor who was discipling me, and we were going to a retreat, and, and he walks into a building, and, and he notices all these things that are Christian on the wall inside this uh, country store, and he says, oh, are, are you a Christian? She goes, I am a Christian. I'm a born-again Christian. Are you a born-again Christian? And I'm sitting there watching this like, I don't even know what that term means. I mean, I've been a Christian for about, I don't know, a couple of months. It was really weird, weirding me out, kind of. And he says, oh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a born-again Christian because my spiritual gift is teaching. That sounded weird. I mean, is that the basis of our assurance? I have this particularly discernible gift? Ability? He got that all wrong. If you understand this word. You see, it's derivative of this word pneuma, which is spirit. And it pertains to being derived from or being about the spirit. And so it begs the next word. There's two words that translates this word in your English. Spiritual gift. But actually the word gift isn't there. It's, a, it's of the Spirit. And you're asking, well, what is of the Spirit? And the short and, and, and silly here is just, I won't go through all the, the stuff that you'll go through a little bit in your Bible study in a couple, in the next week. But the short of it is it's, it's always an activity. It's a ministry. It's every time it's used. It's about a ministry, an activity. And then you say, well, hold it. What about prop? Well, that's an activity. It doesn't have to be a down gift to me. Prophecy, healing, whatever it is. It's, it's an activity. It's something you're doing for the community. And that's the key. It pertains to the empowerment of the Spirit. Let me say it this way. Like I said at the beginning, it's taking whoever and whatever you are, and it's empowering it by the Spirit in order that it is useful to the gospel mission and ministry of the, of the church. That's all it is. The fact of the matter is it can, it can pertain to anything, and it can change. Over and over and over again, this is re, uh, re, restated in your um, ways, uh, in, in this passage, for instance. It says, there are distributions of charismata, but the same spirit. And there are distributions of areas of service, diakonia, but the same Lord. And there are distributions of workings, intergamata, but the same God. Now, what did Paul just do? 
He's telling you, if we just slow down, what this spiritually derived thing is. It's a service, diaconat. It's a working. It's, it's doing something. This is picked up as well in Ephesians 4. How it is that to fill all things is to equip the saints for the work of service, of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Another way to say this, and I won't keep going with this, but, but there's this incredible and important connection here so that the biblical view of a spiritual gift is that every believer, listen carefully, every believer has been assigned by the Holy Spirit to specific positions and activities of service. They can be small or large, short-term or long-term. They can be many at the same time. They can be few at the same time. They can change over time because it's all related. It's all defined. It's all determined by what the community of faith locally needs from you. It's that simple. And you have the ability, whatever, training, whatever it is, to be used in that service. It's, it's the way the Spirit changes our motive, changes our purpose in who we are that makes it a spiritual service that is spiritually derived. Because now it's Christ-centered and for His glory, not mine. That's the irony is how often spiritual gifts is about me. And you walk into a church and you say, well, my spiritual gift is, and it's all about self-actualization. This is what the spiritual gift means. Number seven. The focus of spiritual gifts, then, is on the communal impact. Not on individual identity, self-worth, assurance of salvation, self-expression, hierarchies of spiritualities. It has nothing to do with all that. It has to do with the focus, how you complete us, the body of Christ, to do, to strive together in the service of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You help us to complete Christ, the fullness of him who dwells all in all, who fills all in all. Notice then, everyone Everyone is a spiritual gift to the church. You are the gift to the church. We need each other. You are needed. Every member is equally honored. Some are offices, some aren't. But they all are essential. The purpose then of the spiritual gifts he says it very clearly now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray by mute idols. Did you notice that passage, how it frames it? However you were led, therefore I want you to understand that no one speaking the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Why did he say that right before he, as, a, as the introduction to this whole thing? He was turning its focus, of course, on Christ and his Lordship. That these things, these ministries, translated spiritual gifts in many English places, it's, 
It's really about Jesus Christ and his lordship, expressed in, with, and through our lives in order to save and help and be merciful to other people. And so the purpose is obviously to to give glory to Christ. Now, every believer is assigned by the Holy Spirit to specific activities or positions at a specific time and place. They can change again in the next time or the next place or moment of the history of a church. They're all, though, assigned. And finally, number nine, we need to discover a biblical understanding of Christian ethics. So much of our ethics, it seems, in the church wants to focus on indiv- what I do individually. And, and it does. You know, we, we get on talking about issues like social issues, abortions, or justice, or whatever, and there are ethics like that. But we can never forget that, at least for Paul, there is no, so, there is no ethic that is not social or communal. It all relates to someone. It's not just my isolated morality. I can't be ethical apart from you, in other words. I can't just go up to my, you know, you know, this land in the Adirondacks and be by myself and be ethical. <laughs> Ethics requires you and the way in which I participate with you. It's everywhere through Paul. It's everywhere. He says, God has composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, and that there may be no divisions in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. You see, the communal context of the believer's life is of the greatest importance to Paul. For Paul's understanding of how the Christian is able to know what he ought to and ought not to do, listen to this. The believer's life and actions are always in, with, and for the brethren in Christ, says Richard Hayes. For him, moral action is never a matter of an isolated actor choosing from among a variety of abstract ideas on the basis of how inherently to be good or evil. Those conversations that we have in our academic, you know, kind of ways, they're diversions. You do ethics. You can't even talk about it for it to be ethical. You do it. That's the point. In other words, how do we know what to do? How do we make decisions? The point that Paul's making is we would only know what to do and how to make decisions once I am enmeshed, tangled up with you. That's how we make decisions about what we spend. That's how we make decisions about where we spend our time. That's how we make decisions about where we live. and All of it, it has to do not just with me and my happiness. In fact, that's the problem. If it does become about me and my happiness, you'll be a very unhappy person. It's called selfishness in the Bible. And it results in loneliness in the Bible. The number one trigger of unhappiness according to surveys. It's an irony. The happier you are is the more partaking of one another you are. So I hope that this study will be insightful for us. 
Um, as we engage for the next, I think, uh, I don't know, I think it's eight weeks, seven weeks, something like that, each in various demographics, and you're going to say, God, Pastor, it seems odd that we would talk about the variety of gifts and the variety of demographics, and then we would, you know, go divide up into our demographics. Yeah, maybe, but no, not really, because, you know, we want it to get really, really, really real. Local, as in, let's start in this concentric circle as we continue to build out and out and out. Let's, let's, let's shake it up a little bit. Now, again, we encourage everyone to be part of a life group. We encourage everyone to participate in those joint events, like a Friday night, or what do we call it, uh, First Fridays, or a Wednesday, or these events, or a cleaning day in the church. Every bit of that stuff is important because we got to mix it up. But we also need, particularly within the similarities of our own lives, as in different demographics have tends to have different needs that are associated with it. Or time constraints that are different in different groups. So we're just trying to get, get it going as we study these spiritual gifts. And I hope that you'll have a lot of fun doing it. But let's pray. Let's pray. Because we are talking about, how do I say it? We're talking about salvation. You are essential to my full salvation. Think about that. Amen. If you've been listening, you know what this is all about. And so let's go there. It was the night in which Christ was betrayed that he took bread and he broke it and he gave thanks. He gave it to his disciples and he said, take, eat. This is my body given to you. How so, you ask? When Christ has ascended into heaven, you know the answer. This is my body given to you. In the same manner, the Lord took the cup and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, this cup is a new covenant, my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink ye all of it. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you remember Christ. His death. His sacrifice. For in the mystery of that sacrifice, he partook of our suffering. As we are now called So I'm going to invite you now to bring your prayers to us so that we can pray for you this week. Use the card. You may go outside and pray with someone as well. And we're going to also ask you to give your, as a token, but to give your life to us and to one another as we do this in the collection. Lord. 